Oh man, well hey, good morning everybody. I'm sure we'll have maybe some more folks come in a little bit later, but uh, excited to be with you this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and find the book of James. James, Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, all those general epistles near the back of your New Testament. We're going to be in James for the summer. But before we get into James, we need to do a little debrief, and I'm, 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 it's unfortunate that uh, not more people are here this morning, but uh, I guess we're recording this, so that'll be, it'll be good. We can uh, point people in this direction. We need to debrief a little bit about something that took place on choir tour. So for those of you who were not on choir tour, on Tuesday, we went and served uh, a, a food pantry ministry doing a whole lot of really awesome things in the Tampa community and had a great time doing it. And uh, the pastor of the church that's connected to this ministry uh, did something that is probably for most of us a little out of the ordinary, right? And so what he did is he spoke a word that he believes came from the Lord to a specific person in our youth group that was... uh, prophetic. He he spoke a word that was foretelling something, saying something about what will happen in the future. And that may have caught a lot of us off guard of something that is not normally practiced in our church and in our tradition. And it's a recognition that you and I as followers of Jesus are not just big C Christians in a big C church, but we have a a context, a specific tradition and a specific uh, congregation that does certain things and practices certain things that's different from other churches and other traditions. And when those things kind of rub up against each other, it can make us uncomfortable. So just wanted to dispel some things for you. First of all, uh, Pastor Sixto is not a psychic. Um, he, He does not have like uh, access to the future, like Biff's almanac in Back to the Future. Maybe that's a reference that no one gets, but by the Snickers, some of you did, um, right? He doesn't have something written in stone in front of him that he can just look at, and right? He, he's he's wanting to be faithful to Jesus by practicing something that his church tradition, the Pentecostal tradition, practices. So here's what we know: we know that that's a church of people who love Christ, who love the gospel, who want to see. People who are lost come to know Christ and be saved from their sin, to to serve people in the community that have uh, great, great integrity and and, want to serve people well and want to love people well. And for those things, we can rejoice. But what do we do when we come confronted with something that we may not necessarily either agree with, or even if we might agree with it, we don't know how to practice it. There's just going to come confusion about the certain things. And I would just encourage you to recognize that there are some things for which churches ought to divide over, right? So um, who should we baptize, right? That's a question, right? Some of our Presbyterian and Anglican brothers and sisters think that if you're born, you are eligible and should be baptized as an infant. We as Baptists think, no, it's when you become a believer that you should be baptized. And so if we had a church congregation full of people who thought you should baptize your babies and no, you should baptize only believers. It's not going to be long before the people in that congregation are going to be at odds with one another about how we practice this thing called church. Does that make sense? So that's a question over something that we probably should divide and say, 
that's a different church, this is a different church. Now we have Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches. The question of the gifts of the Spirit and how those gifts are practiced in the life of the church at Lakeview is not a question over which we have decided to divide. So you have brothers and sisters at Lakeview that would have heard and seen what we heard and saw on Tuesday and go, yes, amen, that's awesome. What an incredible word from the Lord. And you have other believers who go to Lakeview who would say, ah, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't know if I agree with that. I'm not sure I believe those things. And that's okay. The response for us as young believers is to say, what is my conviction on that question? When I go to Scripture and I read the Word of God, what does it tell me about how Christians ought to function in the life of the church today? You may come to a different conviction than me, and that's okay. But is your conviction rooted in Scripture? Pastor Sixto's conviction is rooted in Scripture, and his, his uh, intention is to be faithful to God's Word as, as best as he possibly can. So in all of that, let me just encourage you to think, yeah, that was a, maybe a weird thing for a lot of us. And we can be thankful to God that he has clearly spoken in his word all that we need. His word is sufficient for us. We don't need, we don't need any other words uh, for life and for godliness. Second Peter 1 tells us this very clearly. But he's also given you his word and brothers and sisters who are spiritually mature, whether it's your parents, your table leaders, your pastors, who you can go to and say, hey, this is a question I haven't really thought about before. Can you help me understand this? Because our faith is not a faith that we kind of build and construct like Legos and get to put together any way that we want. No, Jude tells us that our faith is received. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So I'm going to pick on Thomas for just a second. Thomas's faith isn't whatever Thomas wants it to be right? It's not like going to the buffet and going, oh, I want some of that Holy Spirit, and I want some of that salvation, and I don't want any of that church stuff, and I want some of that end times. No, like Thomas, if he's a follower of Christ, is saying, I want my faith to conform to the truth. And you have pastors and parents and leaders whose faith, because of time and experience and learning, is more conformed to the truth than yours is right now. So when those questions and those things and those experiences come up, it should drive us to say, oh, I want my faith to conform to the truth. Let me ask those questions and see what's true. Does that make sense? All right. We could go way further on that, but we're going to talk about James this morning. But I did want to make sure that we kind of addressed it and just said, uh, nothing to panic about. Um, But it is something that should remind us that we want our, our, our minds and our hearts to be conformed to the scriptures. Okay. James. You should be in James chapter 1. I want to read it for you, and we're going to dive right in to introduce this book, this letter that James the Just writes to the church. Let's just read the first verse. James, a servant or slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. (laughs) Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we are delighted that we get to gather together as the people of God. Open up your word and hear from you. And Lord, as we begin this summer series of walking through 
the book of James, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts that can be molded and shaped by your truth, by your glory, by your revelation of yourself to us. What we will find in this book is that our faith is immensely practical. And so I pray for every one of us, beginning with me, that all of the knowledge that we acquire would find a way by your spirit to be proved and practiced by our lives. So Lord, give us wisdom, give us eyes to see, help me to teach with clarity and with power and with accuracy all that you have for me to teach and all that you have for us to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, three things we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, Introduction material, and then two kind of big ideas that we're going to see throughout uh, James's letter to the dispersion. But let's first introduce James the just. So when you read the book of James, it starts off by saying, James. (laughs) So he's telling you at the front end, hey, I'm the one who's writing this. Now, there's a lot of James... James's in scripture, especially in the New Testament, especially if you realize that this word James is actually a translation from the Greek name Jacobos, which kind of sounds like Jacob, doesn't it? So his Greek name was actually Jacob, but we've translated it in English to James in the same way that we translate Jesus from Yeshua, which sounds like Joshua, right? So who is this James? Well, history tells us and the New Testament tells us that this is James the Just. James the Just. He introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's key because James the Just was Jewish. So his his background was Jewish. He was follower, he was a follower of Yahweh. He was a receiver of the old covenant, the promises, the scriptures. And he believed, according to Deuteronomy chapter 6, that there is only one God. And yet, this James says, I am a servant. I am a slave. I am the master of my life is God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So James is starting off his letter making it very, very clear that I, James, am equating the power, the authority, the lordship of Jesus with the lordship of God. Because I believe that Jesus is God. So he's a servant of God, a servant of Christ. But in fact, he is more than that. James, this Jewish Christian, this follower of Jesus was also Jesus's half brother. So we get this from places like Matthew and the book of Acts and church history. But this particular James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And his pedigree, his heritage is from within the very family of Jesus himself. Now, if you were James and you were wanting to write a letter that you wanted to have some authority, some power, some influence, wouldn't you say, hey, I'm James, Jesus's brother. So listen to what I'm saying, right? Like we often will try to 
throw something on our titles to, to make us seem more important or more uh, valuable or more uh, uh, worthy of being listened to. There was a, a famous early believer named Polycarp who, who did something like this. It's funny, you can go read some of his stuff. Um, but he, uh, he has a disciple called Irenaeus. And, and Irenaeus says, well, I'm, I'm telling you these things that I've learned from my mentor, Polycarp, who, if you don't remember, was discipled by John. And almost as if like, so what are you, you going to say to that? Like, you're going to tell me that John is wrong? you tell me that John, the beloved of Jesus, is wrong about what I'm saying? Because I got it from Polycarp who got it from him, right? So we kind of use that as like a trump card. And, and, and James could have done that. He could have introduced himself as James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the brother of Jesus himself. But no, he says, I'm a servant of God a servant of Christ. Because what you're about to read is not authoritative for you and me as Christians because James wrote it. Although it's important that James wrote it. It's authoritative to us because it was inspired by the Spirit of God. And it was given to the church of Christ in the first century, around around the late 40s, early 50s AD, so not long after the resurrection of Christ, maybe just a decade or two, and James is calling out to the dispersion, this pillar of the church in Jerusalem, known for wise leadership that you can read about in Acts chapter 15, a section, an event known as the Jerusalem Council, is writing to what he says is the 12 tribes of the dispersion. That is, he's not writing to a particular congregation. So when Paul writes to the Philippians... He's writing particularly to that congregation that meets in Philippi. When he's writing to the Thessalonians, he's writing to a particular congregation in Thessalonica. James is writing to the dispersion. That is, the believers who have been dispersed all throughout the Roman Empire. So he's, he's most likely having Jewish background Christians in mind, but he's writing it in such a way that all believers, including us as Gentiles, uh, might receive and understand and apply. That language of the 12 tribes among the dispersion should remind us of the time of the exile in Israel's history. So if you remember your Old Testament, you know that Israel was a kingdom. Then we had a king named Saul, and then a king named David, and a king named Solomon, and then we kind of all forget what happens after that, right? Right? So Jeroboam and Rehoboam, Solomon's sons, split the kingdom into the northern and the southern kingdom. And after one bad king after another bad king ultimately, ultimately leads to God sending prophets to say, if you don't repent of your sin, the world is going to crush you and disperse you out among the nations. And they're like, I just don't think he's really going to do that. But what happens in the, in the 700s and then in the uh, 500s, the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, respectively, conquer these kingdoms and disperse the Jews, disperse the Israelites all over the world, the known world at the time. So they became exiles. They became dispersed. These 12 tribes of God followers were scattered. So James is using this language to say, that's who I'm talking to. I'm talking to believers who are in a place that is not their home, that are very clearly in the world of the Roman Empire or of the Western 
uh, hemisphere in the 21st century, but are not of the world. Christians in James's day might have some similarities in their feelings and their practices to Christians in our context, in our day. So what we're about to study is from James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, to believers who are in need of reminders about walking in the way of Christ. This book is full of wisdom. And today we're going to catch two big ideas. In James chapter 1, he's going to kind of lay out all the things that you and I need to hear. And then in James 2 through 5, he's going to kind of repeat himself. So if you were with us in the spring, so seventh graders, sorry. If you were with us in the spring, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon was really good at repeating himself. James is going to do similar things because James, as we're going to learn, is rooted in a kind of wisdom style, kind of wisdom literature style. The two big things that you've, you'll see in James as far as influences to his writing, influences to his teaching is uh, Proverbs and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament and the Sermon on the Mount. So that makes sense, right? <laughs> My brother's teachings and uh, this wisdom literature that he was steeped in from a, uh, from a young age. So that's who we're talking about, the servant of God, the servant of the Lord Jesus, who has two things for us this morning. So let's read in verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So big principle from verses two through four for us to consider this morning, rejoice in the trials. Rejoice in the trials. As we read James, you're going to see him over and over give commands or imperative statements to us as believers. These are not optional. Like, don't miss this. When Scripture commands us, it's not for us to consider whether or not to obey. What is for us to consider is how might we obey? So when James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, what he's saying is, you need to rejoice. And you think like, man, it's kind of hard to like choose to rejoice Rejoicing is kind of something that happens almost automatically. It's like a feeling, right? It's this, it's this response to something wonderful. Like when you get that thing that you put on your Christmas list and you see it under the tree, like you don't have to think about rejoicing. It just kind of happens. And for all of us, rejoicing is not the natural response to trial. Now, rejoicing is the natural response to good things, not bad things. And in our minds, we think trials are bad things. Well, James is convinced. If you're a follower of Christ, you are to rejoice. Not if trials come. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He's convinced that you will be met with trials if you're a follower of Christ. So if you consider yourself a Christian and a trial comes, hardship, suffering, 
persecution. Do not think, as Peter says in his letter, don't think something strange is happening to you. Because James is telling you they're coming. But notice what he says. Why are these trials coming? In these trials, your faith is being tested. So so think think of it like this. Trials in your life as a follower of Christ, all trials, all of them are tests. Your trials are tests. They are not punishments. They're not the result of a God who's mad at you or neglecting you or wanting to be mean to you. He, the sovereign Lord, is testing you. Now, there's a difference in our minds that we need to be really, really clear on when we think about trials as they relate to temptations. So we have trials and temptations. And and what's the difference between a trial and a temptation? When, When something comes my way, when I'm exposed to something, when I experience something, when I hear something, is it going to be a trial or is it going to be a temptation? And the answer, the difference between trials and temptations are twofold. Number one, the difference is the source. Where is this coming from? Is it coming from God? Well, as we'll read later on in James chapter one, God tempts no one. So you can know without doubt that, that our temptations don't come from God although he does test us. So source is important because we also have an enemy, right? Who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. We have our own flesh that's that's kind of moving in the wrong direction because of our sin that loves to find us in temptations. So when I experience a trial, if I consider the source, the source, God, the sovereign Lord is over my life and all things that are coming into my life come through his providential hands that I can know this is not a temptation. This is a test. This is a trial. This is a test. This is something that he's doing to produce something in me to test my faith. But if I'm focused on the enemy, if I'm focusing on, focusing on my flesh and what I crave in my flesh, then of course it's going to be a temptation. So the source is important and the perspective. So think about it like parenting. This is just what's fresh on my mind. So we just gave Abe some freedom, okay? Like a week ago, he was in a crib. So you put him in the crib, he goes to bed, he goes to sleep. When he wakes up, he's still in the crib, right? He's in, ca- he's in a cage. He can't get out, right? Even, he probably could, he just doesn't know that he can. But last week, we took off the one wall of the side of the crib and made a little opening that now he can get in and out of the bed by himself. And you might think, that's not a big deal. Parents, that's a huge deal. Because now, little homie wakes up after the nap, and instead of just like whining and crying for mama, he just gets out and like opens the door and goes out. Like, freedom. That's not a bad thing. Right? As, As our children grow, we want to give them more opportunities to show responsibility, to have freedom, the the limits that we put on them start to get less and less. Now, let me give you a more maybe appropriate example for you. Some of you are uh, turning 16 or have recently turned 16 or you will turn 16 in a little while. 
and you'll most likely eventually get a driver's license. And when you get that driver's license, your parents aren't going to be like, oh, you want to go to the Grand Canyon by yourself? Cool, you have a driver's license. No, no, no. They're going to be like, hey, why don't you go to Walmart and like grab these three things and then come right back, right? So, so they're giving you freedom and they're giving you an opportunity to model faithfulness, right? Because when they tell you to go to Walmart in that car by yourself with your license, what they're saying is, I really hope you don't go off a cliff or I really hope you don't drive to Kentucky or any other place that you could go. And what those parents are longing for and hoping for is that by testing your faith, you would be found faithful. So that next time, it's not Walmart here, but hey, actually, would you be willing to go to these three places and pick up these things? Right? So they're testing you, not with the intention of watching you crash and burn or fail, but in the hopes that you would be found faithful so that you might be given more responsibility, more opportunity, more freedom. Students, your trials are the same way. God allows trials to enter into your life, not to crush you, not to harm you, not to make you doubt his goodness, but so that your faith might be tested. So if, we're, if we think about this, this will totally change the way you approach hardship in your life. Because now hardship isn't this frustration of a broken world and things just happen, although that is true. But it's also a, Lord, what are you testing in me? What are you trying to show me? What are you trying to teach me right now in this? This is a daily commitment to believe. I'll give you an example. I struggled to believe this truth this week as I was just telling some friends about what I'm preparing to teach you this Sunday. I had this thing in my mind of this this hardship, this trial in my life that I'm having to deal with. And in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing major. But I was frustrated by it. And I was kind of down in the dumps about it. And I, it was it's something that, that kind of exposes some idols in my heart. And it led me to act a certain way and to think a certain way, which is not helpful at all. And right after explaining this concept, this thing, to the, what I'm teaching you about trials and temptations, right after I explained this to some of these friends, I started talking about this thing. And in that moment, they reminded me of what I had just said. Because it's, it, that's how long it takes for us to forget it. <laughs> we are forgetful people. I needed to hear it in that moment. And I'm telling you, you need to surround yourself with brothers and sisters and with God's word that could remind you over and over, your trials are not punishments. Your trials are tests. And notice what these tests produce, steadfastness. James says, Like an athlete who works his muscles in the gym, something in him is produced through the testing of his strength over time. 
right? So if you want to get jacked in the gym, you don't just spend eight hours one day know that you'll be bedridden for like a week because your body's not meant to do that. But over time, these stressors and tests and trials will produce strength in you. And steadfastness, the greater commitment and consistency to believe the Lord and his word, no matter what comes, has an effect on us. So as our faith is tested, our steadfastness is grown and produced. And the effect of steadfastness, James says, is that it leads us towards perfection. Completeness. A lack of lack. So he's not saying that you'll be perfect in the sense that you'll have no needs, that you won't need God anymore, that you'll be this kind of like superhuman. He's saying that you will be perfect. That is perfectly whole, complete. It's not some promise that in this life, you or I can be morally perfect. No, it's the promise that God is moving us to being fully and completely whole as God's image bearers which means the power of sin in our lives will dwindle. So that difficulty in your life, that temptation in your life, that struggle in your life, we are not promised that those temptations and struggles and hardships will be removed this side of heaven, right? This is Paul. I had a thorn in my flesh and I asked the Lord three times to remove it and he didn't. He said, my grace is perfected in you. My, my strength is found in your weakness. They're not promised that it'll be removed. But in that thorn in the flesh event, Paul learned how to be content in Christ in a way that he wouldn't have learned without the trial. In the same way for you and me, as we are tested by these trials, we can rejoice. We can rejoice. We really can respond to our trials with joy because every time trials come, we know God is at work. He's doing something in me. He's doing something in us. When these hardships, when these sufferings come, that's not a sign that God is absent. That's a sign that God is very intimately involved and at work. But that's hard to remember. It's good, but it's hard. So where do we turn when those trials come? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." So if we want to rejoice in the trials day by day, moment by moment, we're going to have to be reminded of what's true when our hearts and our minds struggle to believe it, which means second big idea for us this morning and third point, ask God for wisdom. We learned all spring semester what it means to have wisdom, to fear the Lord, to be able to take what we know about God and his word and to apply it rightly in the proper way and at the proper time. And trials often reveal that we lack something, right? We we have something that we don't want 
Maybe it's a sickness or a strained relationship. Or we want something we don't have. A boyfriend or a girlfriend. A friend. Stability at home. Grades. Right? When those trials come, they reveal a lack of something. And these tests from God lead us to depend on Him for what we need rather than the world for what we need. And James seems to think that a major deficiency in Jesus' followers in the nitty-gritty of life is wisdom. So when he talks about rejoicing in trials, the very next thing he says, hey, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it. We just spent the spring semester learning about wisdom. And we learned that God gives wisdom to those who fear him because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And remember, fear isn't this like terror and horror at God. It's this right recognition of who he is. We learn that Jesus is the wisdom of God. So if we're asking for wisdom, we're asking for Jesus. We're saying, God, I need Christ to live in me, as Paul says in Galatians 2. I need Christ to transform my mind. I want to believe Philippians 2, that that I want to have this mind which is mine in Christ Jesus. So if I need wisdom, I need Christ. And the good news about this situation, our trials, our lack, and the fact that Jesus is what we need is that God is generous. He's not stingy. He's really, really good at giving his children what they need. So you can go to him at any time with your needs asking. And the way that we go to God asking related to our needs is prayer. How do I go to God and ask for wisdom? I pray. I speak directly to him at any time, any place, any emotional state. I can go to him and have confidence that he hears me. But James says, if we are to ask for wisdom, we are to ask in faith with no doubting. He then gives us this picture of a wave out in this massive expanse of the sea tossed about by the wind. So it exists and then it doesn't. It's there and then it's here. It's it's all over the place and nowhere at the same time. James says that those who ask God for something like that, tossed to and fro by the winds and the waves, should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. That's a really scary verse. He, James says, is like a double-minded man, literally a person with two minds and therefore unstable in all his ways. He's on choppy waters, moving from belief in God to belief in other things, back to believing in God, back to believing in other things. What do we do do with this? Because there's a wrench that we need to throw in this whole passage and situation if we're honest. And the wrench is all of us have doubts. Doubts. Like there's not a person in this room who at some level, in some way in our faith don't struggle with doubt. We all have doubts. We all struggle at times to see God's faithfulness, to see his goodness, to know his love for us. So what do we do with this? If James is saying, you got to pray with faith, with no doubting, or you don't need to expect to hear anything from him. And you're going, well, I have doubts like all the time. What do we do? 
Are we able to ask God anything if we have any doubt at all? I don't think that's what James is getting at. The doubting that James has in mind comes down to two spheres or ideas, okay? The first is a real doubting and questioning of God's character in the asking and in the praying. So there's a difference between, Lord, I need this, but I don't think you want to help. Versus, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I need you. Do you hear the difference there? One of those is clinging to God, even if it doesn't seem to make sense. The other is casting doubts on God's character while just kind of throwing a shot in the dark and thinking maybe this will help. And what James is saying is, your doubts cannot lead you to questioning and doubting his character and his goodness. The second idea James has in mind is when we treat God like some kind of extra little push that aids what mostly comes down to our power, our intelligence, and our ability. We pray, sure, but it's because we've got it mostly figured out and just need a bit of God to help us get across the finish line. So the doubt here is not that God is able to do these things. The doubt is that we aren't totally dependent on the Lord for all that we need. So if I go to God in prayer going, Lord, I've made it 95% of the way and I've got this thing kind of figured out, but there's this little little hitch here and I'm just going to need you to figure that out for me. Thanks. James says, you have failed to see the reason why you were in this trial in the first place and you have no expectation because God is not your genie. He's not your cosmic butler that you can just boss around and say, oh, if you just do that for me, that'd be great. Thank you. So if we're asking ourselves, do I trust that God is able to help me in my need, to give me wisdom? And do I know that I'm completely dependent on the Lord? And we are answering yes to those questions. Then the other kinds of doubts that we have about making sense of God's word or what God is up to in our lives now have a context and their power in our own minds will, by God's grace, weaken. Now we want to be steadfast in our faith and wise in our living. And in both, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And in our suffering, we know he is there. In our doubting, he is there. And he gives us the gift of his body, the people of God, to remind us of these truths. So as we move to pray and spend time in our groups discussing these things, my hope, my hope is that we would see that if God is who he says he is, if God's word is true, if Jesus really did come back from the dead as he said that he would, then the two things we've learned from James the just, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
can be banked on now and forevermore. When trials come, I can rejoice. It doesn't mean I won't ever have sorrow, but it does mean that I now have a context to these trials that God is at work in my life. And God is generous to give his children all that they need to be faithful. So if we lack wisdom or any other thing, we really can go to him at any time. And we really can believe that he is able to do these things. Our trials shouldn't lead us to doubt God's character, to doubt God's goodness. Our trials lead us to run to a good and faithful God for all that we need and all that we lack.